You're tuned in to ReachMDXM, the channel for medical professionals. You're listening to ReachMDXM233, the channel for medical professionals. Amazing imagery of human brains in action are now possible thanks to the increasingly sophisticated use of magnetic fields. Functional magnetic resonance imaging machines allow today's researchers and clinicians to monitor changes in brain activity, leading to a better understanding of healthy and diseased brains. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Kathleen Margolin, and joining me from Chicago is my guest, Dr. Keith Fulborn, Director of the Center for MR Research at the University of Illinois at Chicago. Welcome, Dr. Tholborn. Thank you very much. Dr. Tholborn, what is meant by functional imaging? In the setting of magnetic resonance imaging, what we're referring to is where we can provide images of the brain and demonstrate those areas of the brain that are actually involved in a task. We do this by presenting the patient with some type of stimulus, and it may be a simple stimulus such as a flashing light, or it may be a complex decision-making process such as reading sentences, questions, and uh, responding to those questions with a finger switch. What we do is provide the stimulus, and during the presentation we, pro we obtain images that allow us to decide which areas of the brain are actually involved in the task. This is incredibly important for mapping out eloquent cortex prior to any sort of surgical intervention. And this is where it's primarily used today in the clinic. Well, let's talk about how functional MRIs are used before neurosurgery to define those eloquent areas of the cortex. Well, up until just recently, as of the beginning of 2007, there was no reimbursement for providing this type of service to the neurosurgeons. Those centers that were doing this were really doing this as a courtesy to the neurosurgeons who were requesting this information, having this information being demonstrated in the research environment for many years now, it's only recently with the establishment of reimbursement codes that, in fact, there's been a general trend in radiology departments to provide this as a part of the general neuroradiology service. And as such, we now see that we can provide very useful data to the neurosurgeons on a routine basis prior to their surgery of patients. What kind of information are you providing? Basically, we're providing information about the eloquent cortex, those areas of the brain that the neurosurgeon would like to preserve to make sure that the patient doesn't have or suffer from any deficits following surgery. Functional MRI is so superior in its accuracy and its cost-effectiveness to older approaches like electrophysiological mapping of the cortex or the WADA test. Can you describe these older tests that would be done? On a research perspective, people have been comparing inpatients now for a number of years the water testing, which is basically an invasive test where there's a, a drug injected into, a, into the vessels that lead to various areas of the brain to see whether, in fact, that area of the brain can be made dysfunctional. That would localize a particular function to that area of the brain. What areas of the brain would the neurosurgeon be trying to localize with the WADA? The two areas of mapping that the water test is usually prescribed for is for mapping areas that are associated with memory, usually in the hippocampal areas, and also uh, language areas, either Wernicke's or Broca's area, where you're trying to establish hemispheric dominance or laterality. So, in fact, the water test is invasive. It's in competent uh, neuroradiologists' hands. It's actually got a very low risk associated with it. What is the WADA procedure like for the patient and the clinicians involved? The, the WADA tests that I've had the uh, opportunity to observe usually involve uh, the patient coming in 
uh, the day before the actual procedure, being trained how to do the tasks, and then they go through the angiography procedure to map out their vessels and then to place the catheter in the appropriate place prior to the injection of the drug. At that time, there's usually a neuropsychologist, a neurologist, a nurse, and a technologist also involved with doing this in an angio suite. So you can see that it's labor-intensive and it's actually rather expensive, as well as being invasive. And when the drug is injected, the patient is then asked to perform the various tasks they learned the, the day before. Very complicated uh, process and not always giving definitive answers in some patients. The advantage of the MRI over the WADA seems obvious then. That whole procedure that uh, can take up to five hours in an angio suite with about five different people can all be done in less than 20 minutes on an MR scanner with no invasive procedure, just having the patient perform some very simple tasks that they can, they can be trained on in 10 minutes prior to the MR procedure. So in fact, you see that one very complicated, expensive test, which has been a gold standard for uh, many years, uh, can actually be replaced to a large extent by a very simple, non-invasive procedure. Now, the comparison of results when patients have had both procedures uh, would indicate that, in fact, the results are equivalent in terms of sensitivity and specificity for answering the clinical questions. So given that the tests are probably of equal value in terms of the cost, it's quite clear that the functional imaging study is, is much more cost-effective. If you've just joined us, you're listening to ReachMDXM233, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Kathleen Margolin, and my guest is Dr. Keith Tholborn, director of the Center for MR Research at the University of Illinois at Chicago. So functional MRIs are used both to understand brain functioning and for clinical purposes, as you just mentioned. What are some of the normal cognitive processes that are now better understood thanks to using functional MRI? Well, initially, people had a criticism about functional imaging, saying that it's really not delivering any new information that we didn't already know. I believe that that criticism was probably true in the early days, which is probably 10 years ago now, but now that we understand how functional imaging works, we're actually able to say new things about brain function. For example, the, the water test that we uh, described previously tends to say, well, language is on one side or the other, it's in both hemispheres. The functional imaging studies not only tell us about hemisphere, but they actually tell us that the brain does not function with single parts of the brain performing one task and another part of the brain performing another task. The brain is a network of areas that are all associated, and depending on the task, different areas will work in a network to produce the behavioral response to the task at hand. The memory paradigms that we use to map out memory, for example, not only map out the hippocampal activation, but also map out areas in the frontal lobes and parietal lobes, and depending on whether it's a task based on listening or reading, will map out occipital and temporal areas as well. MRI has helped us learn that behaviors and responses are not limited to only one specific area of the brain. So we actually understand now that the brain functions as a series of networks, and these networks can interact and can overlap. A task can move from one network to another, depending on the strategy used by the patient to answer a, or deal with a, a specific task. So, in fact, we, we know much more about how the brain responds to normal challenges, normal cognitive tasks. What have you learned by studying brain injuries? In the setting of patients where the brain has been damaged, we understand the remarkable recovery process, the whole process of neuroplasticity. 
We understand that early in an insult, brain responds by redistributing the workload into other areas of the network, whereas uh, long-term recovery from an insult probably represents an attempted repair to the area of damage. So when we think about rehabilitation, we should be thinking about what stage a patient is in and how the brain is responding to the injury when we start to prescribe various interventions. The interventions early in a disease process may be very different from those late in a process. Let's talk about the mechanical, the functioning of the MRIs. With the three Tesla MRI, how is it that the molecules of water in our brains acting as magnets allow images to be created when the brain is placed in a very strong magnetic field? Okay, that's a a very complicated question. Involves some MR physics. Let me try and reduce it to some very simple rules of thumb. When an area of the brain performs a function, there's an increased metabolic demand. That increased metabolic demand requires an increase in blood flow so that the brain can continue to use oxygen. The brain is obliged to use oxygen to produce energy. Energy is required to produce the uh, neuronal activity. So the way the brain increases its ability to increase oxidative metabolism is to increase blood flow so that the oxygen can be delivered to the area of the brain performing the the function as quickly as possible. Now, that increase in blood flow, that local increase in blood flow, actually changes the magnetic properties of the tissue in that local area. Blood changes its magnetic properties as it changes its oxygenation state. That change in magnetic properties is what is reflected in the MR image. Can you give an example? For example, when an area of the brain, such as the occipital pole during visual stimulation, increases its workload and increases its blood flow, there's actually an increase in the oxygen content of that area of the brain. That increase in oxygen content changes magnetic properties and we get an increase in the MR signal, which is reflected in the uh, activation map that results from that particular stimulus. There's a delay, though, between the onset of the task and the peak of the blood flow response. This is actually a very important difference in why we need to move to the metabolic underpinnings of the of the activity. Let me try and separate those two things out. When the brain performs a task, such as a flash of light and the occipital pole says, okay, I'm going, to, I'm going to process that signal, then the time when the blood flow increases is actually several seconds after the brain has already processed the signal. So the use of functional imaging today at uh, clinical field strength of three Tesla and below really is a surrogate marker of the neuronal activity that comes really several seconds after the stimulus has already been processed. So it's a rather remote way of monitoring neuronal activity. The neuronal activity actually produces an increase in metabolism that then asks for more blood. What we want to do with the 9.4T magnet and what we're in the process of doing is now looking directly at the metabolism that underlies the neuronal activity. That means that we'll have a temporal resolution very close to the time when the neurons are actually doing their task rather than waiting for the blood flow response. You mentioned the 9.4 Tesla MRI. That is the MRI that you designed, and it has a much greater magnetic field so that you can monitor the electrical activity of the brain. Yes, the the issue to get to the metabolic processes that underlie the neuronal activity, we really have a problem in or a challenge in the fact that the signals that underlie the metabolism are very weak, much, much weaker than the signal that comes from water and the increase in in blood flow. So in order to 
have access to these uh, much weaker signals that come from the metabolites, we actually have to go to a much higher magnetic field. And that was why the 9.4T human size scanner was built. And the hopes of using that scanner is that ideally? The, the answer is, is we, if we're going to really understand brain function, we have to use signals that are much closer to the neuronal activity. And that's really not going to come from looking at blood flow changes. It's really going to have to come from looking at the metabolic underpinnings of the neuronal process. Thank you for listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Kathleen Margolin, and my guest has been Dr. Keith Tholborn, Director of the Center for Magnetic Resonance Research at the University of Illinois at Chicago. Thank you, Dr. Tholborn. Uh, thank you very much. This is the ReachMD XM channel. Send us your thoughts and suggestions through xm at reachmd.com.